All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles together. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here in just a moment, we'll start in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 5. The question today is, how can I discern God's will for my life? How can I discern God's will for my life? And you might be disappointed with the answer to that question when you come to Scripture, depending on what you're trying to discern, what decision that you're trying to wrestle with. We ask questions like this all the time. If we're trying to follow the Lord, if we're trying to live in God's will, what does God want me to do with my life? What job does God want me to have? What career does He want me to pursue? Who does God want me to marry? What kind of house does God want me to buy? Where does God want me to live? How does God want me to live? And honestly, when it comes to the details of those decisions, the Bible doesn't say a lot. You're not going to find a lot of detailed help with those kinds of questions when you come to the Bible. What you find is the kind of person that God wants you to be and the kind of wisdom He wants you to use in making those decisions. My kids ask me every now and then, Dad, how do you know God wanted you to be a preacher? How do you know God wants you to do this? And the the honest-to-goodness answer is, you don't know completely. You might believe it like I do. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it, and I have no doubts about it. But you don't know God does not speak to us audibly like he did the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul had no question, right? Paul was blinded by a light on the road to Damascus, and Jesus essentially grabbed him by the shirt collar and said, this is what you're going to do, right? Oh, if that that could happen to me, I'd have no, no indecision at all about what I was supposed to do with my life. But it's not like that. God doesn't speak directly into your ear and say, marry that person, right? Live there. Pursue this career. No, he leaves a lot of that up to our own choices and our own wisdom. And so what we have to do is we have to be in his word, being formed by his word, and being helped and formed by a local church, a body of believers who helps us to walk this Christian life. But we do get some help. And the help that we do get in the Bible in discerning God's will is absolutely paramount and as important as it gets. Some of that comes in our text today. Today we come to one of the the last portions of 1 Corinthians. We've been going through 1 Corinthians verse by verse uh, for almost exactly a year now, a calendar year. Uh, And if you've been here for all these sermons, you've heard every verse up till now in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, In Paul's letters specifically... As you get to the end of them, you come to uh, these final greetings often. And you can be tempted as you're reading Paul's letters in the New Testament to skip over these final greetings because it seems like he's just saying hello to a bunch of people. But if you will pay attention to them, in every book of the Bible, there is always gold to be found in these final greetings and these final portions of Paul's letters that we are sometimes tempted to skip over. Let's look at our text today. Uh, We start in verse 5, chapter 16. Verse 5, this is God's word to us through the Apostle Paul. We'll read down to verse 11. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, 
so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now today in our text, I'd like to focus in smaller on verses 8 and 9 specifically. Verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, I want to come see you, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door... For effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, this is one of the most interesting verses, verse 9, in all of the book to me. Because Paul says, the fact that there are many adversaries, the fact that there are many adversaries is a reason for him to stay where he's at. There are many adversaries, so I'm going to stay. There are many people opposing me, so I'm going to stay. Because a wide door for effective work has opened here. It's so interesting that that's Paul's view of it. There are many adversaries, and that is a reason for me not to flee, not to go somewhere else and try my hand with people who who won't be so oppositional. Less conflict somewhere else. No, Paul says, that's a reason to stay. There are many adversaries. And I think there's two practical implications here for our own lives. Number one... Christians don't avoid conflict. If you're a believer today, if you're a Christian, we are a people that should not be avoiding conflict. Now, we don't seek it out. We don't seek it out. We don't have a ravenous appetite for conflict. But conflict is inevitable if you're a Christian. And so many people today avoid conflict like the plague. And it causes all kinds of problems. Not just within churches, but in society. Because people avoid, they run away from conflict. How many of us, when we know we need to have a hard conversation, how many of us avoid it as long as possible? How many of us send a text instead of calling or going to see someone in person? It's less confrontational. How many of us would rather talk to a third party about what so-and-so did to us? Instead of going to that person directly and addressing it head on with the source. Hey, you you hurt me. I want to address this with you. Can we talk through this? How often does that actually happen in our society today? How many of us see a problem that's going to require tough conversations and we just do nothing, desperately hoping that it will just go away? How many of us, when we get a negative vibe From someone else, we say to ourselves, fine, I'm just not going to talk to them at all. I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. We are a society that avoids conflict. We run away from it when it needs to happen. Following Christ, brothers and sisters, means we must expect conflict. If you want to follow Christ, expect conflict. Conflict. I cannot give you a picture. If you are not a Christian today, I cannot invite you to follow Christ and say, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be smooth for the rest of your life. That's not what will happen. If you truly follow Christ, conflict will happen. You need to expect it. In Luke 21, 17, Jesus says, 
all men will hate you because of me. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus said to his apostles, and it's a word that I believe can also be taken in the context of not just his apostles, but all of his followers. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. We are not greater than our master. They persecuted him, they will persecute us. Matthew 10, 34-36 is especially helpful here. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, Jesus does not mean here that he has come to make sure there's no healthy families. He does not mean here that Jesus has come so, kids, you can just disobey your parents, dishonor your mother and father. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the gospel is a dividing line. The gospel is a dividing line. It draws a line in the sand. Which side are you on? And sometimes that line will go right through our families and it will hurt And it will cause heartache. Because when you come to Jesus, if you really give your life to Jesus, He becomes the most important thing in your entire life. He is the the Lord of our lives. If we are to follow Him, He must be Lord. But that means we're going to run into conflict with other people that we care about who do not also have Him as Lord of their lives. The gospel is a line in the sand. It's a dividing line. And Jesus, believe it or not, said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to draw that line in the sand. Now, as Christians, this does not mean, like we said earlier, this does not mean we seek out conflict. We expect conflict, but we don't seek it out. There are many today who are seeking out conflict in an unhealthy way, and we don't want to be a part of that culture, right? There are many today who are seeking out conflict, picking fights on social media, getting easily offended at so many small things. There are many who are accusing other people of bigotry, racism, or hatred after hearing a rumor of one sentence they might have said. And there are so many people today who are finding their identity in what they are against. They find their identity in what they are against. This is so popular today, and it's addictive. It it gets ratings. Finding your identity in what you're against. Being that person who is always calling others out. Being that person who is always saying what everyone else has wrong. Don't be that person who is characterized by what you're against. Be characterized by what you're for. Right? We want to be characterized by what we're for, by what we believe in, by what we support, by what we draw other people to. We don't want to be the person who is always, always, always telling other people what we're against, what is wrong with everyone else in the world. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
We want to be peacemakers. We want to, as far as it depends on us, we want to live peaceably with all people. And so we don't seek out conflict. But brothers and sisters, we can't be surprised when it comes. That's the message of the the Bible. That's the message of Jesus to his followers. Live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you. But the gospel's a line in the sand. If you're following Jesus, you will experience conflict. You will experience persecution. In our culture today, we seek out unhealthy conflict, but we avoid healthy conflict. We seek out online arguments, but we avoid face-to-face conversations about disagreements. We seek out division, but we avoid the hard work that leads to unity. We're ready to spout off about our political party, but we stay silent about Jesus Christ and the gospel. We are becoming professionals at spotting the speck in someone else's eye while being oblivious to the plank in our own. And the idea of rebuking someone in love, which can be found all over the New Testament, the idea of rebuking someone else in love is something that is completely foreign to many Christians today. If you are a Christian today, when was the last time someone rebuked you? That's not your spouse, all right? Not your spouse. When was the last time a brother or sister in Christ rebuked you in love? When was the last time you rebuked another brother and sister in Christ in love? In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a straight-up commandment. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And if he repents, you've won your brother. I'll tell you what Jesus doesn't say. If your brother sins against you, go tell all of your friends and complain to them. If your brother sins against you, go talk about it behind their back to everyone you can find, but don't talk to them. That's not what Jesus says. And so we should not be seeking out the unhealthy conflict that the world wants so much of. But as Christians, if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't avoid conflict. Listen to the example that we find in Acts chapter 14. Let me read to you just a few verses from Acts chapter 14. Stay in the text of 1 Corinthians with with me, if you will. But these will be up on the screen. Acts 14, starting in verse 1. Listen to this. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers... So, now that's a big so right there. So, they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It says, there were unbelieving Jews who were stirring up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against Christians. And what was the result? Because of that, they stayed. They remained For a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. They didn't run away at the sign of conflict. They stayed. They worked for the Lord against the conflict. Listen to later on in that same chapter, Acts chapter 14, verse 19. This is absolutely amazing. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul. They stoned him. They put him in a pit and they threw rocks at him, big, heavy rocks. This was intended to kill him. And it says they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So he's apparently unconscious and they believe they have done their job. 
And then it says, and then it says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Think about this. Imagine this. Paul, speaking boldly for Jesus, attracts a crowd that decides we're going to kill this guy for what he's saying. Put him in a pit and we're going to throw rocks at him until he dies. And they do so. And they think he's dead. And then they drag him out of the city and leave him, thinking that his body is absolutely dead. He's just unconscious. They leave him. And then the disciples gather around him, figure out he's not dead. This is great, great news. And Paul gets up, bloodied. He's probably got an eye or or both swollen shut. He might have cracked ribs. He might have broken bones. He gets up and he walks right back into the city where they just stoned him. He walks right back. Doesn't avoid the conflict. He goes right back for the Lord. And so as Christians, we cannot be the, the kind of people who avoid conflict, who just kind of run away every time there's something hard to be done. No, we, we are Christians and we expect it because our Lord tells us to. We have so many wonderful examples in Scripture. But this text also shows us, not just that we shouldn't avoid conflict, but that Christians should be characterized by perseverance. We should be a people characterized by perseverance. Because we live in a flaky culture, brothers and sisters. We live in a flaky culture. People quit things all the time when it gets hard. They say, I've been at this job for six months, and it's clearly not my dream job, so I'm just going to go find another one. You know, the average college student switches majors at least once during their studies, and many of them twice. The average tenure of a pastor at a church right now is only three years. And it is no big deal for someone to give their word and commit to something only to take that word back later. And this is especially a problem for people my age and younger. Just saying, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll come help. Yeah, I'll come do that for you. And then just flake out later. Not show up when they said they were going to do something. Not being true to their word. I've, I've had a problem with this myself in my own life. Becoming a product of my culture. But it's no big deal for someone to commit to something only to take their word back later and then everyone excuses them and says, well, they've got to do what's best for them, right? We live in a flaky culture. But Christians above all people should have a tenacity, a hard-nosed determination and resolve to endure and to keep going amidst opposition and trial. We should be people that people look at, we should be the kind of people that others look at and they say that's a person of longevity. That's a person who has staying power. That's a faithful person, true to their word. In 2018, I was at a conference. It was a big conference. Had about 12,000 other pastors at this conference in Louisville. And at this conference, they, they do this every two years. They give out some really amazing prizes at the beginning of the conference every year. And they, the way they do that is they kind of just try to figure out, well, who in the crowd has, uh, has been maybe the, the pastor of their church the shortest amount of time or the pastor of their church the longest amount of time. And at one point in this conference, 2018, they had us all stand and then they said, okay, uh, everyone who is not a senior pastor, sit down. And all, all the senior pastors are left standing up. And then they say, okay, um, everyone who has been a, a, a pastor at your church for one year or less, sit down. 
And then they say, for five years or less, sit down. And ten years or less, sit down. And they, they keep going to try to see who has been the pastor at their church for the longest. Well, eventually they wanted to get down to that one person so that they could give him uh, a, a full set of John MacArthur's commentaries on the entire Bible. They actually had five guys walk out on stage carrying books like this, right? And it was John MacArthur's commentaries on the entire Bible. And they say, whoever wins this is going home with this, and we'll, we'll ship it to your, your place because we know you can't carry it, right? But, I mean, it's just five guys with their, their chests full of books here. It's John MacArthur's commentaries on the entire Bible. It's a really amazing prize, right? Some of you might know who John MacArthur is. He's a a preacher out at a church in California. Well, they start eliminating people, and eventually they worked their way up to 51 years. One man was left standing. He had been the pastor at his church, one church, for 51 years. And so the man who won the entire set of John MacArthur's commentaries was John MacArthur. <laughs> he was there, and he had been a pastor at his church, same church, for 51 years. A picture of faithfulness, a picture of endurance, a picture of staying power, a picture of perseverance. Galatians 6 verse 9 tells us, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not grow weary of doing good, brothers. Do not grow weary of doing good, sisters. Where you are working, where you are laboring for the Lord, wherever it is, understand that it takes time for seeds to plant and germinate and grow and spring up. And sometimes you don't even see them spring up. But do not run at the first sign of opposition. Do not use the fact that there is opposition, that there are adversaries, as a reason to think this is not the Lord's will. I need to go somewhere else. Yes, there are times to leave a job. Yes, there are times to leave a city. Yes, there are times to leave a church. But when people think of Christians, they should think those are people who persevere through trial. Those are people who stay when things get tough and try to influence change instead of bailing. Because the picture we get from Scripture is that our default should be to stay and to persevere Paul faced many adversaries, and instead of that being a reason to leave, he saw it as a reason to stay. One of my pastoral mentors just recently stepped down as pastor of a church he'd been pastoring for 17 years. The church that he had been pastoring for that amount of time never got above 75 members. So this is not some big celebrity pastor. When he started at that church... It was on its last legs, and it was about to die. But he felt God was calling he and his wife to come and revitalize that place. In the first five years that he was there, he had to survive three attempts by the members to fire him. Not because he was doing anything unbiblical, but simply because the church just didn't want the status quo to change. During those times, even though he was a relatively young man himself, his health started to decline from a few serious stress-related issues. But starting about year six, he began to see encouraging changes start to happen in that church and in the hearts of his people. Toward the end, his people were weeping because he felt like God was calling him to another ministry. But he left not when things got hard. 
He left when things were at their best. This is one of my personal pastoral mentors in life right now. And so Christians should be characterized as people who stay. We should be characterized by perseverance, especially amidst trial, especially amidst opposition. Paul says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The adversaries were a reason to stay, brothers and sisters. But second, I want you to see in that same verse, verse 9, that many adversaries meant that God had opened a door. Not that He had closed one. The adversaries meant God had opened a door. So let's talk a moment about discerning the will of God in our lives. What does God want me to do with my life? Should I stay where I'm at or should I leave and make a change? Now, like we said earlier, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say on details about things like what job God wants you to have or where he wants you to move. But we can take away a few important lessons here from verses 8 and 9. First is this. Opposition is not automatically a reason to leave your situation. Opposition does not automatically mean this is not the Lord's will. But we tend to think like that sometimes. As Christians, we tend to think very simplistically. Right? If everything's smooth, if everything lines up, it's God's will. And if, if I experience opposition, if I experience trial, if I experience frustration here, it must not be God's will. We tend to think in categories like that, and they aren't exactly biblical. Now, I talked earlier about one of my pastoral mentors. Let me tell you just a, for just a moment about one of my pastoral heroes, a man I've never met, named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon lived from 1759 to 1836 in England. And at 23 years old, Charles Simeon was appointed pastor of Holy Trinity Church, which was located at the center of Cambridge University in England. Now, he's 23 years old when he's appointed pastor of this church. Now, the congregation didn't have a choice, because in the Anglican church, the bishop chooses the pastor, not the congregation. The congregation actually almost unanimously wanted a different man, a man named John Hammond. But what they got was Charles Simeon. The first day that Charles Simeon showed up to preach, the congregation locked up their rented pews. Now what that means is, back in the day, especially over in England, pews used to have real tall walls on the sides of them, and they had doors. So you had to open the door to go into the pew. It's not like that now, but you had to open a door to get into your pew. And one of the ways that the church would would raise money for the funds that they needed is people would rent their pews. And so you would have your pew. Now, I know some of y'all have like, you know, uh, a permanent place in the pew you're sitting in right now. You've never sat anywhere else. And there's an indention where you sit. Okay. But, But this was literally like, that's my pew. Because I pay for it. Now, you can imagine all the the problems that that could cause. But they rented their own pews. And they had a key that would unlock the door to go into their pew on Sunday morning. So the entire congregation, as one, decides, we're not showing up and we're locking our pews. Right? So Charles Simeon shows up to preach on the first day. Pews are all locked. Anyone who attends has to sit or stand in the aisle. And all of the regular attenders who pay for one of those rented pews refused to attend. So the next week, Simeon spends his own money, which wasn't much, and bought seats for the aisles, which the church, the church wardens eventually grabbed and tossed out of the building into the street. That's how much they hated him. He then tried to start a Sunday evening service 
In response, the church wardens started locking the church doors after the morning service. In the first 12 years, he endured a number of attempts to get him removed. And he even had the congregation pull their money to hire another man, whom they did. And that other man preached in competition with Simeon for a few years. During this time, he held on to the belief that God's word would do its work. One of the reasons I love Charles Simeon is he's such a biblical preacher. He believed in preaching the text. He believed the power was not in the preacher's word, but in God's word. Give the people God's word. And that's what he did week in and week out. He preached sermons centered on the gospel, always based on a text of scripture. He got up at 4 a.m. every day so that he could spend the first four hours of his day with God in Bible reading and prayer. And after those first 12 years, which were absolutely horrible, things started to go a little better, and then a little better, and then a little better. Charles Simeon stayed at Holy Trinity Church and served as its pastor for 54 years. He said in his later years, the three lessons that a minister must learn are one, humility, two, humility, and three, humility. The congregation eventually warmed up to him, and his funeral after those 54 years was absolutely packed. The shops and stores of Cambridge closed down that day voluntarily. All lectures were canceled. Charles Simeon, 54 years. The first 12 were absolutely horrible. Do not leave at the first sign of opposition, brothers and sisters. Continued frustration is not necessarily a sign to leave, is not necessarily a sign that this is not God's will. And we also see that trouble is not necessarily a sign that God is absent. Trouble is not necessarily a sign that God is absent. We think like this all the time in Christianity. Us Christians, we tend to to be so simplistic in discerning God's will for our lives. If everything is easy and smooth, If everything lines up just right, that must mean it's God's will. That must mean God's in it. But brothers and sisters, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. You don't find that in Scripture. Worldly success is no evidence of faithfulness to God. Worldly success is no evidence of faithfulness to God. You can turn on your TV every Sunday and find tens of thousands of people gathered to hear something they call a sermon at something they are calling a church. And my friends, God's word is not preached there, and God's son is not glorified there, and they've got huge numbers. Tons of people coming. This must be the Lord. We must be doing the Lord's will. Worldly success does not equal faithfulness to God. Praise, receiving praise is no evidence of faithfulness to God necessarily. Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. If you are always giving people what their itching ears want to hear, telling them what they want to hear, you'll get praise, but you won't be faithful to God. Praise is no necessary indicator of faithfulness. But conversely, we think... Well, if it's hard, and if if my plans are frustrated, if I face opposition, this must mean that God is absent. It must mean God wants me to do something else. 
No. Paul saw many adversaries as evidence God was opening a door for effective ministry. Oftentimes in Scripture, brothers and sisters, trials and suffering are the evidence that God is there, that God is nearer than He has ever been before. Trials and suffering are often evidence that God is working on you, that God is helping you grow. In Proverbs 17.3, we read, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Hear that this morning. How do you purify silver? What's the crucible? How do you purify gold? What's the furnace? How do you purify the hearts of people? The Lord. The Lord does that. James says the testing of our faith develops perseverance. When our faith is tested, we are developing perseverance. God is working on you. In the book of Hebrews, it says God is treating us as sons when he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. God is helping us grow. God is helping us grow from saplings that are so easily blown by the wind and so easily knocked down to oaks with deep roots planted by streams of water. Do not take suffering. Do not take trials as a sign that God is absent. Often it's a sign God is right there. Often it's a sign that God cares about you. Often it's a sign that God is working on you to produce a stronger you. Do not take suffering and frustration and trial as evidence that God is absent. It's often the exact opposite. And so what is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? Well, Jesus points the way for us here. Jesus was the most loving and compassionate person who ever lived. And what did it get him? He was hated and killed. Jesus taught God's will perfectly. And what did it get him? He was hated and he was killed. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. And he was hated and killed. Jesus always walked perfectly in the will of God. And yet he found enemies wherever he went. And that will of God led him to a cross. Some loved him, yes, but many hated him. And in the moment of Jesus' greatest suffering, he was exactly where God wanted him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that? Why have you forsaken me, God? God was present right there. Even though He had forsaken Jesus, Jesus is not mistaken there. God did forsake His one and only Son. God turned His back on His one and only Son. God was pouring out His wrath. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus became our sin. Jesus took our sin upon Himself on the cross. And he suffered the wrath of God. Not just the the murder of the Roman Empire. He was suffering the spiritual wrath of God. God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus for sins that were not even his. For sins that were mine and yours. So that we could escape that wrath for all eternity. God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. And Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? But that doesn't mean God's not there. He's there. He's there in a scary way. And He's there in a glorious way. 
And because God was willing to forsake His only Son on the cross, it means we can know that we will never be forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken, I will never be forsaken if I come to God through Christ. And if I hold on to faith in Christ, I will never be forsaken because He was. In the moment of His greatest suffering, He was exactly where God wanted Him. Do not think that ease and success are always evidence that you are walking in God's will. But also, do not think that opposition and adversaries are always evidence that God wants you to leave. Be the kind of person who perseveres through opposition, through trial. Be the kind of person who sticks it out, who stays long enough to see change, to see fruit. Trust in the Lord, who often does His work behind the scenes and under the surface, where no one can see it. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I'll leave you this morning. Each week here at Columbia Christian, after we hear God's word, we spend some time in silent prayer so that every single one of us can respond to the Lord's word that he just put on our hearts. So that's what we're going to do right now. Silent prayer for a few moments. This is a time for you to go to God. God has spoken to you. What do you need to speak to God now because of what he has said to you? Let's pray for just a few moments silently on our own and we'll come back together and we'll have a time where people can publicly respond to God's word if they need to. Let's pray.